0: Tudor History and Travel Show is a podcast that brings Tudor history to life by exploring Tudor places and artefacts in the flesh. You will be travelling through time with Sarah Morris, the Tudor travel guide, uncovering the stories behind some of the most amazing Tudor locations and objects in the UK. Because when you visit a Tudor building, it is only time and not space which separates you from the past. And now over to your host... Sarah Morris.
1: Hello it's Sarah the Tudor Travel Guide here. Welcome to this month's episode of the Tudor History and Travel Show. This is just a note to say that if you are hearing this then you are not currently part of my membership program and will only be hearing the first part of each show. In order to access full episodes of the Tudor History and Travel Show you will need to become a member of my membership site The Ultimate Guide to Exploring Tudor England via the link in the description associated with this podcast. Doors to the membership open roughly every six to eight weeks so if you want to become a member you can add your name to the waiting list right now. The link to do so is in the description associated with this podcast and I will be in touch with further information just as soon as doors reopen. Now, in fact, in a moment, we'll go over to the podcast and to meet with our special expert guest for today. Her name is Sam Harper, and she is going to be showing us around the wool churches of the Cotswolds. Now, two churches in particular, which have deep links with the wool trade, which was so important to medieval and early Tudor England. And we'll also be hearing about their links to Henry VII, who visited the area on a couple, well, more than a couple of occasions actually, and whose relationships with the wealthy wool merchants of the Cotswolds was extremely important to his fiscal well-being. We'll also be visiting a church which has the finest set of Tudor stained glass windows anywhere in England, so you'll want to stay tuned to hear all about that. We'll come back to that in a moment, but in the first instance, I wanted to uh, pick up on a couple of issues of housekeeping as per usual. The first is, is that this month has been a very busy month as I have just launched my new membership, The Ultimate Guide to Exploring Tudor England. Now in the moment, that is in a soft launch or beta test phase and I am running the site with a number of dedicated followers of the Tudor Travel Guide. And we're road testing the site. Oh yes, we are, ladies and gentlemen. But I'm pleased to say it's up and running and I'm getting some fantastic feedback about what people are thinking and feeling about the content, which is fabulous news. Now, in about six weeks time, I will be reopening the doors to joining the membership to the wider world as we do our full launch. And that will go live on the 21st of April. So at the moment, you cannot become a member, but there is a wait list. So if you are interested in finding out more about Tudor Places, uh, or indeed you may be planning your travel here to the UK, and you want lots of inspiration and information about where to go, what to look out for, how to plan your trip, then the ultimate guide is just for you and you can join the waitlist by following the link which I will include in the description associated with this podcast and certainly in April I'll be talking more about what you can expect to find in the ultimate guide so watch this space but perhaps a little more imminently to the world at large is that I have just opened the doors on this year's virtual summit Yes, ladies and gentlemen, it is back. It is, of course, become a fixture in the Tudor Travel Guide calendar and a very popular one at that. And this year, rather than being an autumn summit, I have moved it forward to the spring. Because on the 6th of May, of course, we have a very important event coming up, a truly historic event a coronation which many of us have never seen in our lifetime and so I know from the uh, funeral of the late Queen Elizabeth II that there will be lots of questions about what we're seeing on our television screens and I thought it would be just fantastic if we could get some guest speakers to chat with me about many different aspects the many different varied aspects of coronation and what exactly we're seeing and what to look out for and so this year's summit is called your essential guide to coronation we have Tracy Borman who will be talking to us all about the history of coronation and its ceremony we have Jonathan Foyle architectural historian talking to us about the buildings of coronation particularly Westminster Abbey and Westminster Hall. I'm then joined by Nicola Tallis, author and historian, who is talking to us all about the regalia of coronation, particularly those glittering jewels that we will see on display. And finally, I head to the Royal School of Needlework at Hampton Court Palace to meet up with Elyrie Lynn, who used to be the curator of historic dress at Hampton Court, and Anne Butcher, who is the head of studio there, to talk all about the robes of coronation. So I think by the end of the summer, we will have all angles covered. Now, yes, it is a little bit shorter than normal, but it is comprehensive and it is packed full of all the facts that you will need to be coronation ready when everything gets underway on the 6th of May. So I hope you will be able to join me. Now, as I said, I have literally just opened the doors for booking and I will put a link in the description again associated with this podcast where you can head on over to find out more information about the summit including all of our key speakers and a bonus world premiere from Rebecca Monet and Ashley Risk who are going to be following the coronation procession of Anne Boleyn in their usual fantastic and unique style fusing words with pictures and illustrations and images So yes, you will be able to book your ticket now. Head on over to the link. You'll find lots of information on our info page and also, of course, the place in which you can book your ticket and secure your place. The summit will go live on Saturday the 15th of April and I'll be running all the videos over one day this time. It's a mini summit on this occasion. But if you purchase a ticket and you can't make the 15th as ever, do not worry because all the videos will remain accessible for you to view At your leisure, indeed, over and over again, if you wish, until the 31st of May. So you'll have around about six weeks to catch up with those videos. So plenty of time to do that if you can't make the actual date of the 15th itself. And I would also say for members of The Ultimate Guide, if you are a road trip traveller member, you do not need to buy an additional ticket because access to the summit is included in your level of membership. If you are currently an armchair traveller member of Tug, then you can upgrade. And if you do so, you can upgrade from within the site. And if you do so, then, of course, as per the road trip travellers, you will be able to access the summit live on the 15th via the membership site at no additional cost. If anybody has any questions, of course, feel free to email me at sarah at the Tudor Guide dot com. OK, well, I think that's all our housekeeping done for today. So in which instance we need to head over to the Cotswolds. In fact, I met up with our guide, Sam Harper, at Sirencester, at the first of our wool churches. What a beautiful church it is. It's a lovely Cotswold town, very well healed I should say, as it always has been. It's quite a wealthy area of England. And I meet up with Sam and we dive deep into the history of the Cotswolds, the wool industry, wool churches, and just what close links they had with the crown and in particular with Henry VII. So, ladies and gentlemen, I give you the Cotswold Wool Churches with Sam Harper. Welcome, dear listeners, to Sirencester. We are in the heart of the Cotswolds, and in fact, one of the fairest of Cotswolds' town. And I'm here today with our guest expert, Samantha Harper. Hello, Sam. Hello. Welcome. Pleased to be here. Welcome to the Tudor History and Travel Show. Thank you very much. Now, we are here today on the trail, really, of Henry VII, aren't we? A little bit of Elizabeth of York, but mainly Henry Seventh.
0: Mainly Henry Seventh, and then we'll venture slightly into Henry VIII's son. Okay. Now, before we
1: get going, perhaps you could just introduce yourself for our audience. Who are you and why are you
0: an expert on Henry VII? Uh, So, I'm Dr. Samantha Harper. Uh, I worked at Winchester University on the Chamber Books Project, which was a project to digitise the personal financial accounts of Henry VII and Henry VIII, as kept by John Heron, their treasurer. So they uh, started using the chamber, their own private quarters, as a financial mechanism to try and uh, bypass the, the machinery of the exchequer, which had become really quite onerous and slow by that point.
1: Right, fantastic, and and I'm very grateful because I'm using those a lot at the moment. I'm writing about, doing some research for, and writing about the 1502 progress, and that's what really brought us together in the first instance. And I said, Samantha, it would be lovely for us to go on location to talk about a couple of very special places that are associated with Henry VII, but that's exactly what we're going to be doing today. We're starting off at Sirencester, and in a Mm -hmm. moment you're going to tell us why we are here in the church. But then we're going to a small town in Gloucestershire called Fairford, which today would really surprise you if you thought that there was a a real Tudor treasure to be found there. But there is.
0: Absolutely. Yes, it's an absolute marvel.
1: Well, I'm not going to say any more about that. Folk, you're going to have to stick around to find out what that treasure is. Now let's set some context first of all for our story which is going to focus mainly on the 1502 progress. What was it all about? Where did Henry VII and Elizabeth of York go and why did they go there? But let's set some context about Henry VII and his visits to this part of the world because one of the things I found out quite recently as I was doing a little bit of digging and researching was that. For example, Henry VII had quite a few visits to Gloucester and Lantony Prior and knew the prior of Lantony Prior very well. And I was like, what's he doing here in Gloucester, given that Henry VIII, his son, only came, I think, once to this part of the country? But not so for Henry VII, right?
0: Well, Lantony Priory is an interesting one because the prior of Lantony Priory, Henry Dean, uh, was to be, become a bishop anyway. Um, so, And he regularly is seen in the chamber books to be sending presents of lanthony cheese or mead to Henry VII, uh, which seemed to have been quite a favourite. So
1: one of the interesting things about Henry VII is he does come to this part of the country on more than one occasion. And I, I was curious to know what was drawing him here. Um, and and maybe you could tell us about that. Maybe we could start by setting the broader context. Was What was Henry VII's interest in the Cotswolds and in the West Country?
0: Well, this church, where usually we would be outside, but the rain is absolutely tipping it down. It is. Um, this church, it, it's frequently referred to as the Cathedral of the Cotswolds, and with good reason. It's huge. It was built jointly by uh, the, the merchant community of Sirencester and the Abbey, which is situated just over to the north of where we are now. And to give a little bit of context, Cirencester was a massive wool-trading town. The Cotswolds was made rich by wool and the churches all the way from here up the Foss Way were built and embellished by the mercantile community that lived in their local areas. So for example where we are now you had uh, the Twinnehoe family, were very prominent here, the Thames were over at Fairford, uh, the Fortnays were up at Northleach and so on and so forth. Mm. Where we are, we are actually stood in the, the very impressive 15th century porch of St Church and it's effectively a medieval tower block. It was put here by the abbey adjoined to the church to have clerks in the rooms above us and they were meant to administer the market over which the abbey had jurisdiction. As you can imagine that became quite a point of conflict between the mercantile community and the abbey itself which derives a lot of its income from the market but it also meant that because this was such a rich area they could invest in it, the fabric of the church so where we are stood above our heads is the most magnificent 15th century fan vaulting And fan vaulting we know from, uh, for example, famously above the head of Henry VII in his chapel in Westminster Abbey. Uh, The earliest example of fan vaulting that we know of is in Gloucester Cathedral. And uh, so this was very much a 15th century innovation. And what we will notice is the fan vaulting here bears striking resemblance to that in Fairford Church and I suspect there are reasons for that, which I shall come to later. Okay, right. So, um,
1: you brought me first of all, or brought us first of all, to Sirencester.
0: Mm. Why here first? So, Henry VII visited here in September of 1496 and again a year later. And it kind of makes sense, bearing in mind that the abbey was huge. It had a mitred abbot, which means that the abbot sat in the House of Lords. And being such a rich area, you've got to think of your medieval kings sometimes like politicians nowadays. They have to go around keeping their donors happy, and they relied on the mercantile community in part for trade. Um, certainly, we know Henry VII and Raynald Bray, um, his, uh, one of his councillors, prominent councillors, did trade with the Tame family uh, in wool but also for loans. They were very reliant on loans and benevolences uh, which were kind of forced loans that were not necessarily paid back. (laughs) (laughs) So keeping a good relationship with the mercantile community was an essential. So that would have been one reason why he's visiting and of course in 1497 when he was here in September it was just after the West Country had been incited to rebellion and they'd had a big battle uh, at Blackheath, just outside of London. So it was prudent to kind of go on progress to the West Country, show magnificence, display, show your face, court to your local mer- merchants uh, and be a presence.
1: And was that need to court the mercantile classes the same for his son,
0: Henry VIII? I was just curious, or was this something that had petered out by the end of Henry VII's reign? So, in the 1490s, Henry VII is still trying to build up the rather empty coffers that he inherited from the Yorkist kings. So. Arguably, as Henry VIII's reign progressed and he burnt through its inheritance, so to speak, yes, he did need funds. And of course, his battles with Scotland and France were hugely expensive. Um, but arguably, not initially. So, Sam, I was talking earlier about
1: the fact that I'm busy researching and writing the 1502 progress, which was another of the progresses that came to this part of the country. Perhaps, so you could talk a little bit about the um, context of that progress, um, because it was quite unusual in some ways.
0: It was a peculiar progress. In fact, one doubts whether you could call it progress at all, given that usually the purpose of progress is to show your magnificence to your subjects, to visit local dignitaries or receivers, perhaps in various locales. And not much of that really happened on this particular progress. It seemed to resemble more a trip down memory lane. So initially he's at Langley and Woodstock, his hunting lodges, and then he makes his way over to Wales and he stays in his childhood home of Raglan and Chepstow he visits as well and he's hosted by Walter Herbert. Now Walter Herbert was the second son of William Herbert who was created Earl of Pembroke by Edward IV. And he was the first indigenous Welshman to be created uh, a member of the nobility. And he's... Walter's elder Brother, William, Mm. inherited the earldom, of course, although later he got downgraded to Earl of Huntingdon by Richard III. Walter Herbert seems to have remained a lifelong friend of Henry VII, and in fact Henry was obviously attached to the family. One of the first things he did when he won the Battle of Bosworth and uh, gained the throne was he gave safe conduct to... uh, Uh, Herbert's wife, uh, William Herbert's wife, Mm -hmm. uh, Anne Devereaux, to come and visit him in London. So, on progress, they go, stay in Raglan and in Chepstow, hosted by Walter. And Walter, we think, also used to mark the anniversary of Bosworth, looking at the chamber books, by sending a gift to Henry VII, be that usually of a hunting hawk of some description, uh, there is a peculiar entry of one time him sending a dragon. I'm not entirely sure what that would have been but still uh, and then on the way back they uh, come via uh, just north of Bristol Gloucester and then they go and visit some of the Queen's Dowerlands and that encompasses Fairford and some of the local m- merchants Were receivers, royal receivers of money uh, for the king and queen. I see, I see. Well, that's a lovely description of where they went on this progress. Mm. I think you touched
1: on the fact that it's kind of an unusual progress. And maybe we should talk a little bit about the context of the death, of course, of Arthur earlier on that year. In April. And, uh, you know, because it seemed to me everything, after quashing a number of uh, uprisings towards the end of the 15th century, or two in particular obviously, um, there would have been a period of stability that had come to Henry VII's reign, but then he loses some really important people to him, I think. Does he like Archbishop Morton? And so Various people die, and I think it's yeah. including, of course, his son and heir, so there's, it sort of feels as though, again, there's some kind of sense of instability in the dynasty
0: going forward. It's quite an interesting time, you're right. He does lose Morton in 1500. Uh, he loses important people in government, like John Mordent. Um In fact, later in uh, 1503, he will lose Reynold Bray, who has kind of been a mainstay throughout his reign. Uh, and was a servant of his mother's, Margaret Beaufort, of course. So, and not only that is is quite strange. This also coincides with losing an awful lot of aldermen within City of London, including many of his allies, such as uh, John Shaw, Bartholomew Reed. So there is a general feeling of instability. The fact that they also choose to travel together at this time is curious, not only because of Arthur's death, but Elizabeth's pregnant. And it doesn't seem she's very well. In fact, she has to rest up for a while at Woodstock when coming out here, as seen by her chamber book, where they've had to pay for somebody to to come see her while she's sick. Don't know if something is actually happening among her her ladies because a couple of them are are left behind in various places.
1: Yes, sick
0: as well, right? Sick as well. So maybe they've caught some sort of virus, but given that Elizabeth is pregnant, It's not a good time to be ill. Now, it's a really interesting decision, isn't it? Because, Mm. of
1: course, she gets pregnant quite quickly after the death of Arthur and then goes on this strenuous progress. I think people are still a bit confused as to why she chose to do
0: that. What's your final feeling about why she took that risk, really? It's an interesting one, isn't it? I mean, it's very easy to tend towards the emotional answer, which is that... Uh, her husband was going on this great trip down memory lane to go and see old haunts and old friends. And she took the opportunity to go with him and also visit her lands on the lands on the way back. Potentially. We can't know for sure. There is only so much the administrative records will tell you, but put in the emotional context, it is very tempting to reach that conclusion. Hmm. But curiously, they didn't go to Worcester, and I think a lot of people scratch yes. their
1: heads about that. which
0: is where Arthur lies, of course. Yes, um, it, it does seem peculiar. Potentially because he hasn't got a tomb there as yet. It, it takes a while to create a, a worthy tomb, of course. Um, maybe it was too emotive. It, who knows? It's it's very difficult to tell.
1: But interestingly, you were telling me, I think, off-recording, that they probably took the little Prince Henry, the new uh, son and heir, essentially.
0: So, yes, um, it, it is probable that Henry came with them. And this could have been quite an interesting experience for him, seeing where his father was brought up, uh, the context, uh, visiting Wales. Um, which, as a new Prince of Wales, arguably may have been seen to be important by his father. Interestingly, I believe that it is very, very likely that Henry VII would have spoken Welsh, because from a very early age he was living with the Herbert family, who were Welsh speakers, we know this, and it's not infeasible to suppose that all the nursery staff, the servants and retainers of William Herbert, Earl of Pembroke, would have been native Welsh speakers. It may have been the reason why Jasper Tudor, when he took uh, Henry into exile at the age of 14, chose Brittany. Because, of course, the language in Brittany and Wales are very, very similar.
1: Right. Again, it's
0: speculation, but it is a very tempting conjecture. Mm. Some really
1: interesting things, I think, to bear in mind around what's going on with the 1502 Mm -hmm. progress. Lots of unanswered questions, but still good to muse on them. You have been listening to the first part of this month's episode of the Tudor History and Travel Show the remainder of this episode is only available to members of my membership site, The Ultimate Guide to Exploring Tudor England. To join the waitlist to become a member of The Ultimate Guide, click on the link in the description associated with this podcast. You will be added to the waiting list and I will email you just as soon as the doors to the membership next reopen. I'll see you there. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode of the tudor history and travel show if you've loved the show please take a moment to subscribe like and rate this podcast so that we can spread the tudor love until next time my friends all that remains for me to say is happy time traveling